Um, I do want to commend you for being here still. I mean, I can't believe I haven't run you off yet. Um, you, you are an example of the perseverance of the saints. Um, you are like the poor. I have you with you all. I have you with me always. Um, so we, we've we've listened to a lot of preaching. I've preached twice. Russell uh, preached a wonderful message this afternoon, and so now for our fourth message, um, you must really need a lot of preaching. So. Uh, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John one more time, John chapter 10. And for this afternoon's session, I want us to look at verses 11 through 18. These are extraordinary verses. And I pray that God will give me the ability to teach this, these verses, teach this text in such a way that it will resonate within your own heart and soul. I want to begin by reading the passage as we come now to the fourth I Am statement in the Gospel of John. I think that you'll understand why I've called this I Am the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11 these are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. What makes these verses so extraordinary and why we need to have them incorporated into our hearts is that this is Jesus' own commentary on his own death. This is Jesus on Jesus. This is Jesus preaching on Jesus. This is as good as it gets. This is Christ teaching Christology. This is Jesus preaching Christ and Him crucified. This is the greatest preacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ, 
on the greatest subject that there is, Jesus Christ. Here Jesus is both speaker and subject. He is both preacher and proposition. He is both teacher and theme. Here is Jesus exegeting himself. Here is Jesus expositing himself and expounding himself. This is what makes this passage so special. And it is the longest place in the entire Bible where Jesus himself opens up his own death. The congregation that Jesus is addressing in these words is the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees. And the occasion is after Jesus healed the blind man. And the first ten verses of this chapter is what we call an allegory. We are to never allegorize the Bible when we interpret it. But allegory is a legitimate figure of speech and, and literary device. An allegory is a parable on steroids. An allegory is a parable with but with much more detail. It is an enlarged parable. We find one in Isaiah chapter 5. And here in John chapter 10, this is not a parable, this is an allegory. And by way of introduction, I just want to draw to your attention, I want to do a flyover the first ten verses, and there are eight different significant parts of this allegory that are important for us to understand. In verse 1, we are introduced to the thieves and the robbers, and we talked about that this morning, or talked about them this morning. These are the Pharisees, the thieves and the robbers, in verse 1, who steal glory from God and who have made the temple of God a robber's den. In verse 1, we also see the sheepfold, and in verse 1, this sheepfold is apostate Judaism. It is the dead religion of the Jews. And there are many different flocks that are brought into this community sheepfold. In verse 2, we see the shepherd. And this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he identifies himself in verse 11 and verse 15 as this shepherd. He enters by the door. He comes lawfully, meaning he fulfills all the messianic promises and the messianic prophecies and the Messianic credentials. In verse 3, we have the doorkeeper, and I don't want to delve into that. It could be John the Baptist. It could be God the Father. It's not really as important. But he is the one who allows Jesus' entrance to the sheep. In verse 3, the sheep are the elect of God. They are those chosen by the Father before time began and given to the Son to become his own people. In verses 3 through 5, we see the shepherd's voice. And this is the effectual call of God, the sovereign, irresistible summons and subpoena by the Lord Jesus Christ 
as he calls his own sheep out of apostate Judaism into a saving relationship with himself, and his sheep will not hear the voice of a stranger. They will only hear the voice of their shepherd, and it is by his voice that he draws his sheep to himself, and he leaves them out of this sheepfold. He will never take them back into this sheepfold again. He calls them to himself, and he leads them out. In verse 7, the door is Jesus Christ himself. And it is the door to the country sheepfold. It is a different sheepfold than the one that we have in the first six verses. And in this sheepfold are only the elect of God, are only those who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. And he is the door of the sheepfold. He is the only means by which they may find entrance into the kingdom of God. And in verses 9 and 10, we find the pasture, which is the abundant life that Jesus Christ alone can give. So that is a very quick flyover, the first 10 verses, to let you see the intricacies and the details that are in this allegory that are each, in one way or another, important to the understanding of what Jesus has to say. Now, the key verses that we want to look at this afternoon are in verses 11 and 15 in which Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. We will be looking at all the verses in verses 11 through 18, but what stands out are the two I am statements. And for Jesus to issue it twice is intentional because it has the effect by the repetition to underscore its importance and seal it to our mind. Of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, this is at the very center, because the cross is at the very center of our Christian faith. The first three I am statements lead up to this mountain peak, and the final three I am statements lead away from this central I am statement. The first three we have already looked at. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. The last three will lead away from this central I am, which, I am, which is I am the resurrection and the life. We will look at that tomorrow morning. And then I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, I am the true vine. This I am statement stands in the very center of these seven and it underscores how important it is among all of the I am statements. It is this statement, I am the good shepherd, that is the key statement that unlocks the essence of this good shepherd discourse. Now, there are three main headings that I want you to note as we look at these verses. I want you to notice first, at the beginning of verse 11, the exclusive claim. The exclusive claim. That is at the beginning of verse 11, as Jesus once again makes a staggering claim of extraordinary proportions. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now, contained in those few words are four truths 
that I want to underscore for our understanding. Number one, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it is, number one, a declaration of his deity. We have already discussed this in the first three I am statements. But as you recall, I've already mentioned that this is drawn from Exodus 3, verse 14, when God said, I am who I am. This is the very chief cornerstone of Christianity which is the deity of Jesus Christ. And to put it in another way, rather than taking you back through um, a word study of I am who I am, the next time some cult member knocks on your door and is trying to convince you that they are the true witnesses, let me give you five reasons why we believe in the deity of Christ. And it is worth me just giving you a quick footnote on the side. And I think of it this way, by the acrostic Wayne, W-A-N-E, with two W's. It's so easy. You could wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I could give you Wayne. The first W stands for works. Jesus Christ performed the works that only God can perform. Jesus created everything out of nothing. Jesus forgives. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus performed the works that only God can perform. Jesus did what no man can do. Jesus did what no angel could do. Jesus Perform the works that only God can perform. Second W is worship. Jesus receives the worship that only God is to receive. Even in the book of Revelation, when uh, John, uh, or when the angel falls down before John, John is nervous. No, get up. Don't worship me. Worship God. We understand that only God is to be worshipped. Jesus is worshipped as only God is worshipped. In heaven, Jesus is at the very center of being the object of worship in Revelation chapter 5. And when Thomas fell down in John 20 and verse 27 or verse 28 and said, My God, my, or, my Lord and my God, Jesus did not rebuke him or correct him. He received the worship that belongs to God alone. A refers to attributes. Jesus possesses the attributes that only God possesses. Jesus is perfectly holy. Jesus is absolutely sovereign. All authority in heaven and earth have been given unto him. Jesus knows everything. Jesus never changes. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus possesses the attributes that only God possesses in names. Jesus is called the names that only God is called. Jesus is called I am. Jesus is called God. Jesus is called Lord. Jesus is addressed by the names that only God is addressed. 
And then finally, E, equality. There are several verses in which Jesus is placed on equal footing with God the Father. One of which is Matthew 28 and verse 19, And you shall baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is a declaration of His deity. And I trust even what I just gave you on the side will be a further supplement to bolster your understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 23, verse 1, the psalmist David writes, The Lord is my shepherd. Here, Jesus claims to be the shepherd that only God is. The same is true in Psalm 78, 52, Psalm 80, verse 1, Psalm 95, verse 7, Psalm 100, verse 3. In Isaiah 40 and verse 10, Isaiah says, Climb up on a high mountain and say, Here is your God, or behold your God. Next verse. Like a shepherd, he will, lead, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather his arms. It's very clear that Jesus claims to be God and fulfill the role of shepherding the people of God that only God can perform. But not only is it a declaration of his deity, it is a declaration of his sufficiency. Uh, this shepherd assumes the total responsibility of all the needs of his flock. Let me say that again. He assumes all the, the total responsibility to meet every need in your life. You do not have a need in your life, but that Jesus Christ is responsible to oversee and to care for your life. It's a declaration of his sufficiency to say, I am the good shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. What's the next line? I shall not want. You do, I do not, you do not have a need or a want, but that Jesus Christ is fully sufficient to meet that need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Paul will say in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Third, it is a declaration of his exclusivity. He said, I am the good shepherd. We've already covered the significance of the definite article, the. Jesus is claiming to be the only good shepherd. He is claiming to be not just a good shepherd, not just a very good shepherd. He is claiming to be the only good shepherd. There is no other divine shepherd for your soul other than the Lord Jesus Christ. To have Jesus in your life is to have everything. To not have Jesus in your life is to have nothing. And then fourth, it is a declaration of his superiority. 
when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, this word good, kalos in the Greek, means noble, excellent, choice, superior, ideal. Which is to say, Jesus is perfect in his character, and perfect in his virtue, and perfect in his love. This stands in stark contrast with the Pharisees, those false shepherds who were proud and arrogant and abusive and self-serving, who fleeced the flock for their own benefit. Jesus has come that he might give to his flock. So our lives are so well cared for by this good shepherd. We do not have a need. You do not have a need, but that he is fully able to meet that need. He goes before us to prepare the way. He comes beside us to guide us and to protect us. He comes uh, behind us to encourage us forward. When we stray, he brings us back. When we stumble, he picks us up. When we struggle, he carries us forward. When we slow down, he urges us on. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. You do not have a need in your life, period, paragraph, but that Jesus Christ is fully able to meet that need. When I pursued my doctoral studies, I would drive from one part of the United States to another part of the United States to take my classes, and I would drive through some very remote places in the United States where they grew rice paddies, where they grew cotton, and there would just be little tiny towns that if you blink, you miss the town as you would go through the town. And there was one particular town that I would drive through. All it had was a gas station and a general store. And the general store had two signs on it. I'll never forget this. One sign said, if you can't stop, honk. The other sign was very good. It said, if we don't have it, you don't need it. That's something of what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. If he doesn't have it, you don't need it. Because he has everything you need. It's a one-stop deal. It's the exclusive claim. It's a staggering claim. Now, second, not only the exclusive claim, and this gets really good now, I want you to see the excellent character. Because Jesus is a master teacher. And Jesus now will explain why he is the good shepherd. At the beginning of verse 11, he tells us that he is the good shepherd. But he does more than tell us. He now explains and he gives us three reasons why he is the good shepherd. And you need to know all three of these reasons why he is the good shepherd in your life. And on your behalf. 
Reason number one is found in the rest of verse 11. Reason number one is he dies for his sheep. He goes on to say, after he, after he states, I am the good shepherd, he then says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why he's the good shepherd. Bad shepherds will not risk their own life and give their life unto death for their sheep. Bad shepherds, when the wolf comes, they will flee and protect their own hide and hang on to their own life. But the good shepherd steps in in front of the flock and he lays down his life in order to protect and save the flock. That is why he is the good shepherd. This looks ahead, of course, to the cross when Jesus would lay down his life for his sheep. Now, these words, laid down his life, is figurative language. It's, it's analogous language. And it represents the giving of his life unto death. In the face of eternal danger to his sheep, Jesus steps in and dies for them heroically and bravely and courageously. And as we look at this verse and what all is being said, there are certain things that I want to draw to your attention about this fact that he dies for his sheep. Number one, it is a voluntary death. Please look at this. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Please note, his life was not taken. His life was given. His blood was not spilt. His blood was poured out. He was not a victim. He was a victor. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. His death was not a tragedy. His death was a triumph on our behalf. His death was not a human accident. It was a divine appointment. As he was foreknown and predestined from before the foundation of the world to die this death. He came into this world to die this death, to lay down his life for you and me. So the first thing that I want you to note here in verse 11 is that it was a voluntary death. As he intentionally chose to lay down his life for you and me. This is why he's a good shepherd. Second, as we look at verse 11 a little bit more carefully, not only was it a voluntary dying for the sheep, but it was a vicarious dying for the sheep. He died for the sheep. This little tiny preposition for F-O-R Pupere in the Greek means for the benefit of, for the sake of, in the stead of, 
in the place of. In other words, Jesus is saying his death was a substitutionary death. He died in the place of his sheep. Either his sheep would die or he would die in the place of his sheep. The wages of sin is death, eternal, eternal death. But Jesus, on the mission of the Father, has come to die in the place of his sheep. Let me give you some cross-references. Matthew 28, verse, excuse me, Matthew 20, verse 28. He came to give his life a ransom, who pair, a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. Galatians 1, verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. This is the very heart of our understanding of the death of Christ. If we were to reduce the cross to one word, it would be the word substitution. That he died in the place of sinners. Galatians 2, verse 20, the Son of God gave himself for me. Who pair? Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ gave himself up who pair for us. Large doors swing on small hinges. Major doctrines hinge on tiny little words. This word for that you see in verse 11, he lays down his life for the sheep contains an entire systematic theology in this, in, in this tiny little preposition. So why is, the, why is he the good shepherd? Because he dies for his sheep. He dies a voluntary death for his sheep. He dies a vicarious death for his sheep. But there's one more thing that I want you to note. Before we move on, he also dies a specific death for his sheep. He died a definite death. He died a particular death for his sheep. These sheep, verse 27 and verse 28, tell us are the ones whom the Father has given to him. At first, it's in verse 29. My Father has given them to me. These for whom Jesus died are the ones whom the Father chose and gave to the Son in eternity past to become his bride. They are the love gift of the Father to the Son. They are the chosen bride for the Son. And they will sing the praises of the Son throughout all eternity future. And they will be conformed into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, they are given to the Son in eternity past. And He comes into this world on a mission to save these sheep. 
not everyone are the sheep. Uh, verse 26 tells us very clearly that not all people in the world are his sheep. He says, you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. It's very clear why you don't believe. It's very clear why you can't hear my voice. It's very clear why you follow other strangers. It's because you're not one of my sheep. But Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. The good shepherd died exclusively for his sheep. All for whom he died are saved. None for whom he died will ever perish. This is the doctrine of definite atonement or particular redemption. And it is very important that we understand this truth. Why do we believe in definite atonement? Let me give you just some several, several reasons why before we move on. Number one, this is what this text plainly teaches. That he lays down his life for the sheep, not for the goats, not for those who will not believe but who die in unbelief. He dies for those who are his sheep. The second reason is the intent of Jesus' coming into this world defines the extent of his death. The intent defines the extent. The intent of the cross defines the extent of the cross. Tell me why he came and I will tell you for whom he died. He came for his sheep. He came not for his goats. Not all are his sheep. But third from this text, we believe in definite atonement because of the unity of the Trinity. You will note in verse 30 it says, I and the Father are one. This, this does not mean that they are one person. That is heretical. This means they are one in purpose, one in mission, one in intent, one in aim, one in goal. Now, if one does not believe in definite atonement, you have fractured the Trinity and you have divided the Godhead. The Father chose his elect and has passed over those who are the non-elect. He has set his heart upon the elect. Jacob I, I loved and Esau I hated. There is a distinction within God the Father of his redeeming love for his elect. If Jesus died then for everyone, you have the Father and the Son pulling in opposite directions. You have the Father saying, well, I will save only this people, but the Son then saying, well, you can do what you want to do, but I am going to save everyone. And then the Holy Spirit would be trying to save a third and different group as he would be merely wooing and influencing those who hear the gospel. Not everyone hears the gospel. But only those who hear the gospel and just to kind of tug on their heart. So you would have the Father 
desiring to save only the elect. The Son saying, no, I will die for everyone. And then you have the Holy Spirit trying to save a mediating group halfway in between whom the Father and the Son are trying to save. Here you would have the three persons of the Godhead each trying to save a different group of people. That is like a man getting on a horse and riding out in every direction at once. I was in London a few years ago, and I was at the London Theological Seminary, which was founded by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it just so happened as I was spending the night in their dormitory that that particular week was the John Owen Lecture Series, and pastors from around England had come in. And I went down to eat breakfast that morning with the pastors, not knowing even that a conference was going on. I was so excited to find out this is the John Owen week for, for lectures. And so the pastors were there, and I said, well, let me ask you a question. I haven't been able to be a part of these lectures. And the lectures were on John Owen's understanding of the extent of the atonement. Volume 10, if you're familiar with John Owen's work, is entitled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It is the greatest treatise on the definite atonement of Christ that has ever been written and has never been surpassed. Uh, John Owen was the John Calvin of England. So I said, let me ask you this question, because the lecturer was the premier Owen scholar in the world. And the whole conference was on Owen's understanding of the extent of the death of Christ. I said, give me the number one most compelling reason to believe that Jesus died only for his sheep and not for the world. Throw down the ace of spades and win the hand. I don't know if I can use that illustration here or not, but uh, for those of you who are legalistic, I apologize. <laughs> And he said, well, very clearly, it is the unity of the Godhead. The saving purposes, purposes of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to work together as one Savior. You see, that is why we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because they act together as one Savior. This is why we do not baptize only in the name of Jesus. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because if you're saved here today, it is because the Father has saved you, the Son has saved you, and the Spirit has saved you. And that is why we baptize in the name of all three persons. And their saving purposes and their saving mission is, is one. As verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. And the Father has given to the Son those whom He has chosen, and it is the Son who will die for these same ones whom the Father has given to the Son. Now, the rest of Scripture validates this. Matthew 1, verse 21, it says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. 
In John 15 and verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul, as he addresses the elders of Ephesus, says that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. And in Romans 8 and verse 32, it clearly says that Jesus died for his elect. In Ephesians 5 and verse 25, it says that Jesus gave himself for the church. And in Hebrews 2, verse 12 and following, it says that Jesus tasted death for his brethren. None for whom Jesus died will ever perish. You say, well, what about the verses that say Jesus died for the world? Well, you need to understand that in the Gospel of John alone, the word world, cosmos, is used ten different ways. It's used for all of creation. It's used for this world. It's used for the evil world system. It's used for just a large number or a large group. Remember, it was John who said, well, the whole world went after Jesus. Did they? Did the Eskimos go after Jesus? Did the Aka Indians go after Jesus? Did the Inca Indians go after Jesus? I don't think so. World does not automatically mean everyone. That would be a very naive understanding of the Bible. In fact, a superficial reading of the Bible. Sometimes world means all the non-elect. Sometimes world means only the elect. Sometimes the world means both Jew and Gentiles who believe. Sometimes world does mean all. So to go into any text or into any verse in the Gospel of John with a preconceived notion that any time you see world, it means everyone in the world, is to really have a very superficial understanding of what the word world means. You say, well, what about the verses that say all, that he died for all? Do you mean all without exception or all without distinction? Sometimes it means all without exception, meaning everyone. Sometimes it means all without distinction, meaning all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles, male and female, Greek and barbarian. You just can't automatically go into a verse that says all and go, well, see there? You have to understand how the word all is used. In John chapter 12 and verse 31 and following, Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Does he? When he says, If I be lifted up, the very next verse says he was referring to the manner of death that he would die upon the cross. He's not talking about the preaching of the gospel. If I hear another preacher talk about if I be lifted up, meaning the preaching of the gospel, then I will draw all men 
to myself, well, first of all, that doesn't even hold water because every time he lifts up his voice, everyone in the building is not saved. But it doesn't even mean that anyway. Jesus is referring to his death upon the cross. If he be lifted up upon Calvary's cross, he said, I will draw all men to myself. Now, someone's not telling the truth because all men are not saved. So all must mean something else. And it is actually in that text is the first time that the Greeks begin to come and inquire of Jesus in verse 20. And so, if I be lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to me. It's used that way in Titus 2 as well. So... Jesus is a good shepherd because he saves all for whom he died. If Jesus died for someone and then they perish, Jesus is a crummy shepherd. He is a faulty shepherd that he cannot even retain those for whom he died. At the cross, Jesus did not purchase the entire world and then receive in return only the elect to be his possession. Jesus received all that he paid for at the cross. Jesus died for the elect, Jesus saves the elect, and Jesus received the elect. Otherwise, now pay careful attention, otherwise Jesus was gypped at the cross. Otherwise, Jesus was shortchanged at the cross. In other words, if I gave you a dollar... You have dollars here, right? Okay. I didn't know if we were franc or a pound or whatever. Um, if I give you a dollar, what kind of coins do you have here? Do you have a quarter? No, I knew you wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> what do you have? A one and a two? So how many ones and twos does it take to make a dollar? All right, we're going to do this another way. We're, we're, we're going to do this another way. Russell, don't, don't step. Don't step into this. Don't step into this. All right. <laughs> if I give you $5, okay, you with me? And you only give me $1 back, you with me? Adelaide. <laughs> That's called crowd manipulation. <laughs> if I give you $5 and you only give me $1 back, you have, you're, you're unjust. That is inequity. That is robbery. That is thievery. That is, you have shortchanged me. If Jesus died for everyone... 
but he only gets back the elect. That's a bad deal. The father is unjust. And if Jesus died for someone and they go to hell and they pay for their own sin in hell, that is double jeopardy. That is a double payment for sin. All for whom Jesus died are saved. Do you know the hymn, Jesus Saves, Jesus Saves? You can't sing that hymn unless you believe in definite atonement. Because the Bible does not teach that Jesus made you savable at the cross. He actually saved you at the cross. The Bible never uses hypothetical... Sorry. The Bible... <laughs> the, there's only one microphone here. The, the Bible never uses hypothetical language to refer to the cross. Something definite happened at the cross. There was a definite transaction between the Father and the Son at the cross. Jesus actually paid for something at the cross. Jesus did not potentially redeem people. He actually redeemed us at the cross. Jesus did not hypothetically, maybe, could be, propitiate the righteous anger of God at Calvary's cross. He actually placated the wrath of God at the cross. Either He did or He did not. The one who believes in a universal atonement, if you're consistent, you have to believe that no one ever goes to hell. That, the hell, that hell is air-conditioned and emptied. Whether the sinner believes or doesn't believe. Because Jesus died at the cross for them. So why is he the good shepherd? Because everyone for whom he died, everyone for whom he died, he saved. Now, we could just stop the message right here. I want to tell you, you'll never come to the Lord's table again the same. He didn't die for an anonymous, nameless blob of people. Your name and my name was written upon his heart as he hung upon the cross. He knew exactly for whom he was dying. This is in total contrast to verse 12. He who is a hired hand. Now, who's that? You know who that is. That's the Pharisees. That's the false shepherds of Israel who are in it for the prestige, who are in it for the popularity, who are in it for the money. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. In other words, he's just a, a, a rent-a-shepherd. 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. He abandons them when the sheep are in danger. He abandons them in tough times. He abandons them when they are defenseless. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand. And he is not concerned about the sheep. He is a wannabe shepherd. But the good shepherd is the very opposite. In stark contrast, in the face of the danger of the sheep, this good shepherd does not flee. He does not take flight. This shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When the wolf came for the flock to devour the sheep, the good shepherd stepped toward, stepped forward and went directly for the throat of the wolf and said, you cannot have my sheep. And fought for the sheep at the loss of his own life in order that we would not perish. If he died for you, you'll never perish. Because Jesus saves. Jesus saves. How can we ever look at the cross without tear-filled eyes, without voices quivering, without jaws dropped, without knees bent, without souls humbled by this truth of the definite atonement for Christ. You know what the word agape means? Love in Greek? There was no sloppy agape at the cross. It was a definite atonement. Mission accomplished at the cross. And when Jesus said, it is finished, the telestai in the Greek, it means paid in full. He paid in full the debt for everyone for whom he came to save. And there will never, ever be anything extracted from anyone for whom he died. Now, there's a second reason why he's the good shepherd. Number one, in verse 11, 12, and 13, he dies for his sheep. Number two, he loves his sheep. Now, look at verse 14. He says again, I am the good shepherd. He repeats it for the reaffirmation of its emphasis. I'm the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. You see that word know? K-N-O-W, know. It is a Greek word that means to love. It is used of the intimate, physical, sexual union between a husband and his wife. Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam 
knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. In Matthew chapter 21, it says, Joseph kept Mary a virgin. Literally, it reads out of the Greek, Joseph did not know Mary. Well, let me tell you, he knew all about her. He did. He just didn't know her in the biblical sense of the word. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many wondrous works? And I will say to them in that day, I never... Now, he knows all about everything. In fact, he knows everything. But on the last day, he will say, I never knew you. You know what that means? I never had a relationship with you. We never entered into a a mutual, loving relationship with you. You didn't love me, and my love for you was different. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. This also explains the meaning of the word foreknowledge which has absolutely nothing to do with foresight. That's a pagan myth. That is a religious superstition that foreknowledge means foresight. First of all, you need to understand God has never looked into the future and ever learned anything. I mean, really, you talk about just bad theology is to think that foreknowledge means foresight. And by the way, even in Romans 8, when it says, those to me foreknew, he predestined, it doesn't say what he foreknew. It says whom he foreknew. He's not foreseeing events. He's foreknowing people. Foreknowledge means whom he previously loved with a distinguishing love. The love of God is not the same for everyone. And if that's shocking for you to hear, then you need to hear it. Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. The love of God is not the same. There is an electing, redeeming, saving love that God has for his people. God is angry with the wicked every day. Read Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, and Psalm 11 and come up with another understanding. There's more to the story than smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is, present tense, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But of his sheep... He loves his sheep. He knows his sheep. And the Father has sent the Son to lay down his life for the sheep. And the Son says in verse 14, Oh, I know my sheep. 
I love my sheep. And my sheep know me, and my sheep love me. We're going to have to get him to sing some hymns here in a little bit because <laughs> I don't know how to multitask. <laughs> um, I know my own, and my own know me. It's a, it's a reciprocal love. And the order here is very important. Look at verse 14. Who, who goes first? I know my own, and my own know me. He loved us before we ever loved him. He foreknew us before we ever knew him. First he knows his own people, then his people know him. God is always previous. I signed a couple of George Whitfield books during the break that we had. I love George Whitfield. And if you were to read one sermon by George Whitfield, I would encourage you to read The Conversion of Zacchaeus from Luke 19. And as Jesus was walking through the city, he looked up into the sycamore tree and he saw Zacchaeus. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I must dine with you today. And Whitfield said, of course he saw Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. He's known him from all eternity past. How could he miss him within time? He's a good shepherd. He dies for his sheep. He knows his sheep, meaning he loves his sheep. And to what extent does he love his sheep? Look at verse 15, and it'll tell you to what extent he loves his sheep. Verse 15, even as, and so now he's making a comparison for how great is the measure of his love for his sheep. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Here is the deep, personal, inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son has been in the bosom of the Father from all eternity past. They have been face-to-face -face with each other. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. This is my, my deeply beloved Son. The Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. As the Father loves the Son, and as the Son loves the Father, so the Son loves the sheep. And that's exactly what it tells us in John 17, verse 23 and 24 and 25. That he loves us as the Father loves him. This is why he's the good shepherd. He loves his sheep in a way that he does not lay down his life and demonstrate his love for the goats. There's a third reason why he's the good shepherd. He dies for his sheep. He loves his sheep. He unites his sheep. Notice verse 16. I have other sheep 
which are not of this fold. It's a present tense verb. I have other sheep. They are his present possession, though they have not yet come to him. They're out there. They're outside the fold of Israel. These are Gentile sheep among the nations who have been given to him by the Father in eternity past. And he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, meaning not of the fold of Israel. I must. Just underline those two words. I must. I must bring them. This is the must of divine necessity. This is the must of divine certainty. This is the must of divine sovereignty. This is the must of the effectual call. This is the must of sovereign regeneration. In fact, they will not come on their own. For we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has, has turned to his own way. It is the shepherd who comes and finds the sheep. And he says, I must bring them. And what is the result? And they will hear my voice. The same certainty here on both ends. I must, they will. I must, they will. They will be given ears to hear. They will be given faith to believe. They will be given repentance to turn around. They will be given a new heart in which to receive. And he says, and they will. These chosen sheep for whom Jesus will die will be brought to faith in Jesus Christ no more, no less. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined, and whom He predestined, He called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He glorified. The group He begins with in eternity past is the group He concludes with in eternity future. There are no dropouts along the way, and there are no late additions along the way. Have you ever heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Listen to what Spurgeon has to say. Oh, I love God's shalls and God's wills. There's nothing compared to them. Let a man say, I shall, and what is it good for? A man says, I will, and he never performs. I shall, says he, and he breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shalls and God's wills. If God says, I shall, it shall be. And when God says, I will, it will be. Now, he has said, many shall come. The devil says, they shall not come, but God says, they shall come. You yourselves may say, we won't come. God says, you will come. Yes, there are some here who are laughing at salvation, who, who scoff at Christ and mock at the gospel, but I tell you, some of you shall come. What, you say, can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes, for herein lies the power of the gospel. It does not ask for your consent, it gives it. 
It does not say, will you have it, but it makes you willing in the day of His power. The gospel wants your consent. The gospel gives your consent. It knocks the enmity out of your heart. You say, I do not want to be saved. Christ says, you shall be. He makes your will turn around, and then you cry, Lord, save me or I perish. Ah, might heaven exclaim, I knew you, I would make you say that all along. And then he rejoices over you because he has changed your will and made you willing in the day of his power. And Spurgeon goes on to say, if Jesus Christ were to stand on this platform tonight, what would many of you do with him? If he were to come and say, here I am, I love you, will you be saved by me? Not a one of you would consent if you were left to your own will. He himself says, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Ah, we want that. And here we have it. They shall come, they shall come, they shall come. You may laugh, you may despise us, but Jesus Christ shall not die in vain. If some of you reject him, there will be others who will not. If there are some who are not saved, others shall be. For Christ shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. They shall come, and not in heaven, nor on earth, nor in hell can stop them from coming. Close quote. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he can unite his flock. And he can bring Jewish sheep. And he can bring Gentile sheep. And unite them into one flock. That's what it says here. Look at it. And they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Do you see that in verse 16? Just underscore that, one flock with one shepherd. How many shepherds are there? One. How many flocks are there? One. There's one Lord, one Savior, one shepherd, one gospel, one flock. There's not a Jewish flock over here, and there's not a Gentile flock over here. There, there's not a Jewish Messianic church over here, and then there is another Gentile Christian church over here. That is in defiance of the Word of God. There is one flock with one shepherd. There's not a Baptist flock. There's not an independent Bible flock. There's not a Presbyterian flock. There's not a charismatic flock. There is not a whatever flock. There is only one flock with one shepherd. And when we get to heaven... There is one flock with one shepherd. And while we're here upon the earth, there is one flock with one shepherd. I, I travel all over the place. And people want to know, what am I? I say, I'm a Christian. No, really, what are you? I'm a Christian. What's your denomination? I am a Christian. George Whitfield, when he used to preach, would carry on at a certain point in the sermon on the new birth. He would look up into heaven as if he's having a conversation with Peter. 
Peter. Yes, Mr. Whitfield. Who do you have up here? Any Baptists? No Baptists in heaven. Any Presbyterians up there, Peter? No Presbyterians. Any Charismatics up there? Not a single one. All we have are Christians up here who have been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to downplay the importance of doctrine. I'm a doctrine man. But I'm sick and tired of these labels. I'm sick and tired of this separatistic, triple separation that is going on. There is one flock with one shepherd. Did you get that? This is why he's the good shepherd. He doesn't divide his flock. He unites his flock. The devil is a divider. Christ is a uniter. The last thing I want you to note is the emphatic choice. We look at verses 17 and 18. Hang with me just for a few more seconds and we're finished. Because I, I love verse 17 and 18. I, I want you to love verse 17 and 18. I, I, I want verses 17 and 18 to ring in your ears. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why does the Father love the Son? There's a conditional nature here. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. The Father has charged the Son to come into this world and to lay down His life for the sheep. The Father loves obedience. And Jesus says, the Father loves me because I am in submission to the Father and I live in obedience to the Father. And I lay down my life in perfect obedience to the will of the Father so that, greater purpose, so that I may take it again. And this is figurative language for his resurrection. His death will not be the end. He will die, but he will not perish. He will rise again. Six times in these two verses, Jesus says, I... He could not be any more emphatic. You can take a pen and draw a circle around every one of these eyes.
And would you please note that he will raise himself from the dead? I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. That's extraordinary. The Father raised the Son. The Spirit raised the Son, Romans 1, 4. And the Son raised Himself. It is a Trinitarian resurrection. Just like salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. Just like creation is a Trinitarian creation. Jesus raised Himself from the dead. So verse 18 says, No one has taken it from me, referring to his life. No Roman ruler, no Jewish leaders, no angry mob, no unruly circumstances, no demon spirits, no devil. No one has taken it from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority. Exousia. Meaning, out of oneself, I have authority to lay it down. I have the right to exercise power over my own being. I have authority to lay down my life. No one can take my life. That right and authority belongs to me alone as the second person of the Godhead. And I have authority to take it up again. Supreme authority. Absolute sovereignty. To raise myself from the dead. He wasn't passively asleep and the Father and the Son had to wake him up. He raised himself from the dead in perfect unity with the other two members of the Godhead. He said earlier in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And it is this resurrection which is the ultimate validation of his authority to save and to forgive and to judge and to damn. And then he concludes this commandment. I received... From my Father. What commandment? To come into this world and to lay down his life for the sheep. He was an obedient son, he was a dutiful son who chose not to come and do his own thing. The son did not go AWOL and die for a different group. He was under strict commandment from his father to lay down his life for the sheep. This commandment I received from my father. We have every good reason to trust this good shepherd. He will meet all your needs. He will guide you. He will direct you. You don't have to pray for his guidance. He will guide you. You need to pray for your following. 
He will surround you with His love. You will never perish. You will never slip into hell. He has appeased the Father's wrath on your behalf. He has reconciled you to the Father. He has redeemed you out of the slave market of sin. He has adopted you into the family of God. And He has made you joint heirs with Himself. And He has inherited the entire universe. And we shall reign with Him forever and ever and ever. You do not have a single need. But that He has more than an abundance to meet that need. He doesn't drive the flock like a rancher. He leads the flock like a shepherd. And He is leading you this very moment. And He is directing your life. And the question is, will you and I follow the leadership of the Good Shepherd? He died for you. Surely you can trust Him in life to lead you. Let us pray. Father, this is a weighty Bible study. This is a weighty message. This is an enormous section of Scripture. And Father, I will not water down one syllable of what Jesus has said. And if our theology in this room needs to change, then let it change. Because the grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our God abides forever. May your blessing rest upon these believers and upon this preacher. In Christ's name, amen.